Um, I do want to make a special announcement. Uh, if you happen to have cell phones out there, if you don't mind putting them on silent like I'm going to do right now. Um, last week I, I, got, I received a phone call, several phone calls during the message, and I realized I probably should have turned my cell phone to silent. Happened to be a guy that was running late to the service and trying to figure out where how to get here, so I should have actually picked it up, but maybe next time. But anyways, all right, we're going to go ahead, go ahead and pray here, get started. Um, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2 this morning, so um, we'll, we'll pray and we'll turn there and, and we'll get going. So as we're, let's just bow our heads and pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, uh, we, we do just want to look to you this morning. We really want to bow our heads and our hearts to you. Pray that uh, you would help us to understand your scriptures this morning, help us to understand things from Acts chapter 2 that we need to understand, that you want us to understand. Lord, help us to understand the ramifications related to uh, this passage and related to Pentecost. And God, we do just turn the time over to you. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me. Lord, I ask that you would, um, God, just enable me to speak. Lord, I think of a verse in Ezekiel this morning that talks about how you would cause his tongue to be loosened to speak your message when it came time. I pray that would be the case this morning, Lord God, that you would speak through me, speak the things that you want to communicate, blank out those things you don't want communicated this morning, Lord. But we just turn the time over to you, ask you to encourage us, ask you to bless us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let's see here. Um, This morning we are continuing our journey in the book of Acts. Last week we looked at Acts chapter 1. We're going to do a little, uh, little overview from, from Acts and some more intro on the book of Acts. Then we'll jump into chapter 2 here. But um, before we get started with that, we're going to share some, uh, well, some pictures from this last week. How many of you got to be a part of... Uh, let's see. Oh, there we go. How many of you got to be a part of uh, some sort of fall fest late last... Uh, Last Wednesday night there, we, we had some fun fall activities. We went to the corn maze. How was that? Good. Anyone get lost? No? Everyone make it back all right? Good. That's a good time. How many of you got to carve a pumpkin? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of good. My wife and I carved one for the first time, and they were, if I do say so myself, they were awesome. Um, but uh, it was a good time. We also did in our house church, we did some bobbing for apples here. And... Let me see, we got a few pictures of those, but this is my first time ever bobbing for apples. And we thought we'd do something, you know, it's a traditional sport, I guess you could call it. Um, it was somewhere along the way, it was delegated to Zach to um, help bring about bobbing for apples. And he decided he wasn't sure he wanted us to be bobbing for apples. He thought the water could get dirty, it would be kind of gross. And so he was going to do like bobbing for apples on a string or something like that. So I don't know, I heard about that, got the veto going there. and. Uh, we ended up bobbing for apples here, but you can tell my first time I was pumped. I, you know, I was getting uh, getting psyched out here. I was doing some like push-ups and stuff. I had a few successful bobbing attempts, so I got an apple. And uh, you know, I was thinking we did like playoffs in our, our small group where you kind of you went against somebody and whoever won went to the next round and you took on the winners from that round. And I advanced all the way to the finals my first time in bobbing for apples. And unfortunately, I met Zach in the finals there who. Originally was morally opposed to bobbing for apples. He ended up winning the championship. So, if you guys get a chance, you congratulate him. I don't know how he did it, but I think he was able to get his head into the bucket farther, faster, and get an apple before I did. I left a chunk of the apple on the one I tried to get, and I lost. But good job, Zach. I'm I'm not a sore loser. So, anyways, we had fun. But we're gonna transition here to uh, some things from Acts. Um, We'll start with this verse here, but just an overview again of Acts, some things we didn't cover from last week that I thought would be good to throw in here. Um, Who was the book of Acts written by? How many of you know that? Probably a few out there. Luke. Luke. Several times in the New Testament it's mentioned that Luke recorded the book of Acts. What else did Luke record? Anyone? Bible scholars? Luke, Luke, you're awesome. This is great. Excellent. I think we do have some sour licorice things still we could pass out if we need to here, but um, good. So far, so good. Luke recorded a, you know, he recorded, some would call it two volumes of the New Testament church were recorded by Luke himself. One is 
the Gospel of Luke, which recorded Jesus' life, the things that Jesus did and taught. And it's uh, 24 chapters long. And it's a huge work. Luke also recorded what would be, was known by many as the, the definitive record of early church history in the book of Acts. 28 chapters worth. The reality is, if you take all that Luke was used by God to write, he, um, he recorded uh, the majority of the New Testament. Paul, the Apostle Paul, recorded more books of the Bible, but Luke in the volume that he did was actually recorded more, used by God to record more of the New Testament there. So, um, you know, that's a hopefully a useful piece of trivia. Throw that out of the next fall harvest party or something, I don't know. Um, but uh, let's see what else we have. So another thing to catch when we look at the book of Acts is that um, Acts, in a lot of ways, is a record of what happened in the early church. And we need to understand that it really, Luke describes a lot of things from the book, from the book of Acts. Really, it's the transition piece we talked about from the Gospels, the life of Jesus, to, well, the rest of the Bible. We have these letters to these different cities and these different revelations, and Luke is kind of like the transition. Why do we even have a book to the Philippians? Who are the Philippians? Where's Philippi? Why would we care? And, and Acts sets up the stage of how we go from the Gospels to the rest of the New Testament, and so it's kind of a transition. But a lot of ways, again, Luke's work is is descriptive. Uh, I like the phrase I heard recently. It's uh, the the Book of Acts is more descriptive than it is prescriptive. If you catch what I mean there, the things that Luke did, he recorded what happened, how it played out. He doesn't do a lot of things and say, hey, this is what happened, now you do this. He says, here's, here's what happened, here's what I was a part of. A lot of times uh, Luke writes in the first person, plural, in Acts, where he says, and we went from here to there, and, we, and he traveled with Paul, and he recorded some of the things that happened. So we kind of catch that angle as well, some of these records from... Uh, from his personal account along the way. So we need to catch though. This is a really the time period that this covers is from uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, roughly 33 A.D. to um, it. Acts seems to be dated around. Some scholars would put it at 62 A.D. It covers almost a 30-year period um, from Jesus and then the, the, the first 30 years of the New Testament church. So those are just some things to catch in the background here. Uh, we'll read Acts chapter 2. We're going to divide it into two parts. The first half and the second half we'll cover next week. But if you guys will open your Bibles with me. This is page um, 1078. 1078 and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 22. In a lot of ways, one of the verses to think about as we start on the day of Pentecost here is um, uh, from, I think we have the verse up here, it's from chapter 1. Jesus said, hey, John baptized with water. He reminded them, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we see that promise made as, as Jesus ascended um, into heaven there and then roughly ten days later the day of Pentecost occurred and so here's here's what we read when the day of Pentecost came they were all together in one place suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages, as your footnote probably says there, as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Well, how is it that each one of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, um, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. 
These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and the signs and signs on the earth below. Smoke, or blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming. Um, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And we'll stop right there. So there's just this amazing scene that's going on. It's, it's good to catch some of these descriptors along the way and, and understanding the scriptures. Uh, some, some words you see thrown in there, like at the beginning it talks about a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. And these flames appeared uh, that seemed like flames of fire. There's words in there that are they're descriptive. Was there a violent wind that showed up like a tornado that landed? It doesn't say that, but it says there was the sound of a rushing wind. Um, it was a sound of rushing wind. If you've ever been caught in like a, a windstorm or in your house and the wind's blowing like crazy, there was something that's powerful there, something that's awesome. And something like that occurred there. And was it actual fire that you would have put your hand in over their heads and your hand got burned? It doesn't exactly say that, but it says it was something that seemed like tongues of fire above them. And um, this, this is the day of Pentecost. It was a... Uh, they were gathered in Jerusalem because it was a Jewish celebration. It happened to occur 50 days after the Passover celebration. Uh, uh, Pentecost literally means 50. 50 days after the Passover this occurred. It was a celebration related to the first fruits of the harvest. And people from all over the, the known world, the Roman world, then at the time gathered in Jerusalem to be a part of this, this thing that was going on there. And so... Um, that's, that's kind of the stage as we set here. We're going to cover some different uh, important things we need to catch as we go through this here. Let's see. There's three real areas. If you've got notes, if you've got a handout, I encourage you to take notes um, and, and hold on to them. I think these are helpful to understand. There's three basic areas we're going to talk about this morning. The first one is this. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what that means to you. When you first hear that, I don't know what comes to mind. Depending on your background, that might have some crazy things come to mind where you go, oh, goodness, they're talking about that this morning. What's Pastor Rich going to do? Or you might go, baptism of the Spirit, I've never heard of that. I'm curious. Or you might have some other perspective. But we're going to share with you, I'm going to share with you uh, understanding that we have in this church and in our uh, movement of churches on the subject of the baptism of the Spirit. And I hope you find it helpful. I know when I first heard some of these truths taught, it was helpful for me to put some of the pieces of the puzzle together that I didn't understand. Sometimes when you have quiet times and you read it and you go, what in the world does this mean? Often I pray, Lord... Teach me this. Help me to understand this sometime. And later down the road, through teaching or through putting other verses together, I feel like God answers those prayers. And I hope this might be the case this morning here. But um, So the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to start with a few things here um, to help understand it. First question I have for you is this. What does it mean to be baptized? Immersed. Immersed. Uh, the word, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means what? To be immersed, uh, to be placed into. Um, and so we need to catch that this is the same word. Sometimes we, we think of baptized, we think when you're baptized as a believer, you're submerged in water, and you know, and that's the baptism we know as a believer. But somehow when we get into the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden these crazy ideas come to mind of what this must mean. But I think we need to go back to our simple understanding. The same word baptized means to be placed into. Um, the word that's used here is... Uh, you will see in your footnotes often when it says you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, the footnote always refers to in the Spirit or even by the Spirit. And so I think it's important for us to catch that. It's baptized into the Holy Spirit. There's a, this, this happened at the beginning of the New Testament church. You know, another thing you can know about Pentecost is 
Pentecost was the birthday of the church. The church, capital V and capital church, um, began on Pentecost. Pentecost is, uh, the church includes every believer from the day of Pentecost and through, throughout history, through centuries now, until Christ returns for the church at the rapture. That is the church from the beginning to the end. Um, and when Christ returns, it says he will extract the church from this planet. Um, but, but in order to bring that about, God used the Spirit. It says we were baptized, we were placed into the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is um, how we became a part of the body of Christ that began way back at the first day of Pentecost that will continue. The body will continue to be added to. People will continue to be incorporated into the body of Christ until Christ raptures the church. And so we need to catch that. Baptized, placed into, incorporated. If you would turn in your Bible here to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Let's see if I get a page number for you here. Let's see. 1 Corinthians. It's page... Uh, Mm-hmm. Page 1137. This is a verse, you can write this verse down as it relates to baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism into the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit, which puts us as a part of the body of Christ. And it says it like this. Verse 12 and 13. Chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. The body is a unit, so it is made up of many parts. And... And though its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We are all given one Spirit to drink. We need to catch this here. This relates to being placed into the body of Christ, to be incorporated, if you will, in, into the church. You know the word incorporation. Some of you might see the roots of it, but... Uh, it comes from the root word of Corpus. Uh, how many of you know Corpus Christi? There's a city in Texas, Corpus Christi. I think Chris, are you from there or something like that? Oh, Chris is from there. That's good. I think that makes you a little more spiritual than us. But Corpus Christi means, what does it mean? Body of Christ. Body of Christ. It's where we get words like uh, corporation. Uh, there's, there's a larger organization, a larger body. And... Um, this is how we all have become incorporated to the body of Christ by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. It says right here, by one Spirit we've become part of one body. We need to catch that. That's, that's huge. Now another thing that we need to catch is that um, it mentions here Jews or Greeks. Really, you can think of Jews or Gentiles. You know, um, leading up to this time, there was, a, there was a huge separation between Jews and the Jewish world that were set apart for God. They were God's people, given the, the law of God, the covenants of God, the promises of God. And they were told to be set apart from the rest of the world, those, especially the Gentiles. You know, Gentiles were non-Jewish, and there was this extreme separation. But in the church, in the birth of the church... God did something amazing. It said He brought these two worlds, these two separate worlds together and made them a part of one body. And we need to catch how huge that is. That has huge ramifications, implications. It's greater than, I think, of civil rights movements, things that happened, you know, um, I think of the Civil War and how there was the, uh, the, the subject of slavery and then the ramifications from that since then. And those are giants. This... I believe it's even a bigger, uh, a bigger deal than that. This you know, it obviously includes that. It says Jews or Greeks, slave or free, they were all placed into one body. And this is an enormous deal. We need, we need to understand that. And it's so enormous that it seemed like God used signs to show, hey, this, this is a huge deal. The Jews were uh, used to getting signs from God. God gave them signs to to prove to them, hey, this, this is actually from me. Here's, here's a sign that's going to happen. Here's a sign fulfilled. Signs are throughout the Bible that, to especially speak to the Jewish world. We think of signs of the Christ would be coming. One of the signs it said would be that he'd be born of a virgin. And that was the sign that played out then at, uh, in Bethlehem through Mary, his mother. And there was another sign that they asked him, Jesus, give us a sign that you're really the Messiah, God in the flesh. And he said, here's the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up again. He said, that's your sign. And then through the, uh, the apostles who were with Jesus, as they began to teach about what Jesus had accomplished, God backed their work with signs. Signs that, uh, in a lot of ways, they just they authenticated this work was from God through these apostles. 
And we need to catch that. That's what happens here. We see, um, if you'll turn back to, um, uh, to Acts chapter 2 here. What page was that again? 11, or right, was it 1038 maybe? 10, I don't know, 1078. So there was these signs. So we'll just kind of breeze through this passage again and pull out some things here. Um, let's see what points I have here. We're kind of there. Um, so Pentecost, the day of Pentecost came. Verse 4, they saw these tongues of fire. Uh, they seemed like tongues of fire. and then, uh, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The speaking in tongues was... One thing we need to catch about tongues is that whenever you see the word tongues, you can substitute the word languages. Tongues and languages are synonymous with one another. We need to catch that in the context throughout the New Testament. You can replace languages or tongues with languages, languages with tongues. Now what happened here wasn't just that they started speaking in another language. Um, just, okay, well, Peter happened to study Latin and so he started speaking in Latin. What happened here was they started speaking in languages they did not know or study and people who did know those languages understood. That was the miracle here. We see um, as it plays out here, verse 6 and 7, um, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed they asked, or not... All these men who are speaking Galileans, how then is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? There was an amazing sign that occurred here to these people. And uh, one thing to catch is the Galileans were, they were kind of the, you know what you might call them, of the, of Israel at the time, they were kind of the hicks. They were the hicks from Galilee. Galileans is not a, an encouraging comment. It's kind of like uh, the hicks from the sticks, as I've heard them referred to before. But So these guys who are not known for being eloquent or well-educated, and even in the Jewish traditions, uh, a number of them were fishermen, as we know, which was those that did not go down the path of, of pursuing them, uh, becoming a scholar and you know, in Jewish uh, law and history and things like that. And so, here they are. They show up on the scene and they're speaking. And they're speaking all these different languages um, that they've not studied before. That was a miraculous sign that God said, Hey, I'm, I'm showing you something here. I want you to catch something here. Um, so, you know, again, it's, we always need to catch. It was a language that people could understand. The people that, that were a part of that audience from a lot of different nations and locations, they understood in their language. It wasn't, it wasn't babble. It wasn't just the, you know, at the time it was not uncommon to have uncommon, uncommon. Look, there you go. That is an example of not tongues right there. Um, it was not uncommon for pagan uh, worshipers to have babble, that their prophets would just kind of babble. You know, if these guys showed up and they were just kind of, you know, you probably heard the old speaking in tongues like, uh, bought a Honda, should have bought a Yamaha, something like that. They weren't just babbling like that. They were speaking in another language. That wouldn't have been strange to them. They're like, oh yeah, that's just like what happens back in Corinth there. They babble in their temples. This was, they were speaking and they understood them clearly in their language and they said, this this is amazing. Um, I was thinking of just, we just have to catch that. There's a place later on in 1 Corinthians 14 where it says, hey, by the way, if you use tongues... You need to make sure there's an interpreter there so that somebody can understand what in the world you're talking about. I was walking down the hallway. I saw Jason in the hallway here. Where's Jason at? saw him and I was like... Um... Oh, there's Jason. Jason, uh, that one uh, in the hallway there. He's still in the hallway there. Somewhere. I was like, ¿Cómo está el burro? ¿Cómo we? And he said, looked at me with a blank stare and said, Sure. <laughs> But someone who understands that language, what does that mean, Ned? I don't speak that. Oh, yeah. How are you today? How are you today? And languages are designed to be understood by somebody. If nobody understands, I would suggest to you that God is not using the gift of languages in that instance. And usually those gifts of languages or tongues like we see here, they pointed to God. They brought glory to God. It says, hey, not only were they speaking in my language, they were speaking to the glory of God, the mighty deeds of God. We need to catch that because there's a lot of other uses, a lot of other understandings of tongues throughout Christianity right now. But this is clearly about languages that others could understand the glories of God. 
Um, let's see here. So it was a sign. Now, um, we know, uh, let's see. Oops, I'll back up on here. Now, this speaking in tongues. How many times do we see speaking of tongues, uh, examples of this in the New Testament? I'll answer that for you. You may know. We got one there and the other ones. We got one over there. Okay, well. Nice try, guys. A for efforts. But there's actually three times in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, that we see speaking of tongues in other languages as a gift, as a sign. One of them occurs right here in Pentecost with who? It's a Jewish audience. It's, it's with the Jews. They, they're speaking and Jews from all over the world say, I'm, I'm understanding, I'm hearing, I'm, I'm hearing these guys speak. Another place that occurs, you can write this down, it occurs in Acts chapter 10. Peter is called to go speak to some Gentiles in Joppa. And as he's explaining the gospel to them, Acts chapter 10, what happens to them? They begin to speak in foreign languages. And it's with the Gentiles. And I think it's an awesome thing we have to catch here that when that occurs, there's the Jews. God says, I'm putting the Jews in this body of Christ. I'm putting the Gentiles in this body of Christ. An amazing, miraculous sign he used to show the Jews what he was doing was the gift of tongues through the apostles. In, uh, in Joppa there, the same thing occurred except it was to a different audience. It was the Gentiles. And I love what Peter says. If you flip a few pages to Acts chapter 10, You'll catch this. It says, um, uh, the end of the chapter, the end of the chapter, like 44, 10:44 to the end. While Peter was still speaking these words, he was explaining the gospel to them. Um, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter uh, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Peter goes on to say, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Later on, he returns to Jerusalem and he has to explain to them, these, these Jewish uh, brothers in, in Christ, or these Jewish um, people with Jewish background are saying, What in the world were you doing with those Gentiles? You went to their house, you went into their home, how dare you do that? And he explained. Well, I explained to them the gospel about Jesus. And they believed it. The Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues, just like what happened to us at Pentecost. And, and I like how they say this. In, in, uh, he's explaining this to them in Acts chapter 11. He goes on to say, these people who were kind of objected and objecting to this, offended about it, they said, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. It was a profound thing that happened accompanied by the sign of speaking in tongues. One other time this occurs in, in the Bible, do you know where it is? Probably not. That's, that's what No, that is not. So they discuss the topic of tongues, but an example that we see is Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, that, uh, they're in the city of Ephesus. We can read the first few verses there, Acts chapter 19. Um, it says, while well, Paulus was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, which is uh, speaking to the glory of God. And they were about twelve men in all. So this is, these are the three instances in the entire New Testament where we see the gift of tongues given specifically related to the baptism of the Spirit, being included in the body of Christ. These guys, at first glance, it says some disciples there. It's easy to go, well, these guys were believers. Why didn't they get the Spirit anyways? What was going on there? But a further look, you see, these guys were disciples of John. So they had John's teaching. John basically thought, hey, look, Jesus is coming. You better have a change of heart. You better get ready. Prepare the way for Him. But they hadn't heard. Jesus actually showed up. He died on the cross. He rose again. And now there's forgiveness through Jesus. And 
Uh, so Paul kind of explained that message to them. And then it said, they spoke in tongues. Three instances where speaking in tongues occurred related to including, in this case again, Gentiles into the body of Christ. One other thing I think is noteworthy about this, this section here, chapter 19, is um, in the first couple cases, uh, who, was, who was speaking or preaching when this happened? In Acts chapter 2 and Acts 10, who do we say was speaking there? Peter. Peter was one of the twelve original apostles. Apostle with capital A. We said those were the first witnesses. They were told to testify to all the things that, that Jesus did. They were witnesses to the resurrection. Who's speaking here in, in chapter 19? Paul. Paul. You know, Paul was also an apostle with a capital A. He was not one of the twelve, but he was one that God said was an apostle, was set apart. And again, we said signs are a sign that they had God's approval or that God was doing something special. One thing that we catch here is these Gentiles were included in the body of Christ. But another thing we catch here is God approves the Apostle Paul with the same sign that he approved the message from the Apostle Peter. It was a huge deal. The Apostle Paul was validated, authenticated to be from God just as the first Apostles were. We've got to catch that. It was a sign that God was involved. That's the verse... We didn't look up there. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 just talks about how God used signs and gifts and miracles to um, approve these messengers. So we've got to catch that. Okay, let's keep moving here. There's a lot on that, but I want to make sure we see it. It's, I think it's amazing stuff. Um, some ramifications I want to make sure we, we have here. Um, a few things. There's, um, let's see here. What do I have now? A curse for Christians upon believing in Christ. That's, so back then... Tongues was given as a sign that these, were, these people were to be included in the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. They were placed into the body of Christ. And that was a, a thing related to Pentecost. I like how that, the verse that preceded it, where Jesus said, in a few days, this is going to happen. Ten days later, that happened. And then it happened again days later with Peter and Joppa. But in a few days... And it was fulfilled. We need to understand that this baptism of the Spirit that was attested to by the sign of languages happened. Back when the church was being formed, back before the New Testament was recorded and written, God, God affirmed the apostles' teaching by these signs. And after the New Testament church was on its way, the, we have the scriptures recorded from them. We don't see that happening. We don't see oh, anywhere else in the scriptures but these three places that tongues was spoken to approve or to point to the baptism of the Spirit. And we need to catch that. And because there's, there's a spectrum of belief out there about this. There's a, I want to give you kind of a, when it comes to baptism of the Spirit, there's like a, a spectrum of where people fall. Um, one side of the spectrum you might call cessationalist. Uh, cessation having to do with ceased. These things have ceased. Uh, in the book of Corinthians, chapter 13, it says, you know what? Prophecies will pass away and tongues will cease. Says that First Corinthians chapter thirteen. The other side of it is of the spectrum would be called sensationalist. Sensationalist kind of uh, when you go to that extreme attribute a lot of crazy things to the Spirit of God and even to the baptism of the Spirit. And we have examples of extremely crazy things. I, I took a few articles on this that might help you understand what we're talking about. But um, there's one who claims to be the, the kind of the father of the laughing revival that's over on this side of the spectrum, Rodney Howard Brown, claims to be the father of the laughing revival, in which members of his congregation would suddenly burst out into uncontrollable fits of laughter while he's preaching from the scriptures. You know, when you throw some good humor in that, like I try to do, sometimes that happens, but not, not necessarily uncontrollably, not very frequently, I understand that with me, but then... But anyways, uh, let's see. Brown has been afflicted with uh, this phenomenon himself on occasion and believes it to be a manifestation of the presence of God. One time he was invited to speak uh, by a pastor in the Toronto Airport Church. He invited him to speak. Both pastors were surprised after members, let's see, after members of the congregation began to laugh hysterically, cry, leap, dance, and roar like lions after they heard Rodney preach. They put it down to a move of the Spirit of God, which has spread throughout the world. That we understand to be this extreme of charismatic attributing roaring like lions. Uh, some places talk about barking. 
leaping, dancing hysterically attributed to God's Spirit. On the other side of it is the spectrum of things Things that are supernatural have just ceased. If it's supernatural, uh, I don't believe in it. If, if it can't be backed by science, then I don't believe in it. I don't buy it. You know, it's a done deal. All the supernatural things have happened. We want to find ourselves, and I think we do find ourselves in a place where we go, you know, some things have ceased. We believe God accomplished some things through the apostles to get the church started, to get the New Testaments recorded. And, and yet, we don't put God in a box to say that, well, he can't have some of these things ever happen again, whether it's speaking in tongues or things like that. But, um, so we believe we don't put God in the box. On the other side of it, we go, you know what? The scriptures give us a real good framework of who God is and how he works in this world. Sometimes people disconnect that the Spirit of God is the same one who inspired the scriptures from God. And somehow they go, I follow the Spirit and I do these crazy things that contradict the Spirit, or that contradict the Scriptures, and we just have to be careful on the extremes there. Um, there's some that, you know, we would differ with, and, you know, some that we love in, in the church, we'll see in heaven, but we differ with them. There's some charismatics, there's some Pentecostals that I go, you know what? There's some that I know personally that I think are very dear people in both of those camps, and, and yet we would differ with them on this teaching. Uh, Pentecostals in general, I was looking on some, uh, like the Assembly of God, and they just lay out their doctrine real clearly, but one of the things they say is they believe that not only was baptism of the Spirit uh, with, with the sign of tongues, not only did it happen at Pentecost, it should still happen today, and if you are baptized in the Spirit, you will see a physical sign of tongues in your life today. And it's right on their, right on their doctrine, they're, they're right out and open about it. And... You know, the Pentecostal movement started early in the 19th century here, in the 1900s, I should say. And the charismatic movement, as I was just looking into that, it seems like it started more like in the 1960s and 70s and had some similarities, had some real differences. And some of you might have heard the joke before, what's the difference between Pentecostal and charismatic? Well, how high they raise their hands, I don't know, something like that. Um, they're, they're real similar. One might raise their hands a little higher, I don't know, but... Um, but we have to watch for the air of going beyond what the scriptures say God's Spirit does and where, where things point, you know, after that. I think of another guy that um, was part of a revival down in Florida here and just read this article from a, a guy that kind of keeps watch around, of news around the world as it relates to the scriptures and prophecy. And uh, he said this, he said, if we want to find out what the purpose of this revival is, we need to look at what's being taught by its leaders. Uh, and he goes on to say here, um, let's see, the result would be Christians coming in a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. That is not the case with the Florida outpouring. In fact, Bentley, he's speaking of a guy, Todd Bentley, says that God has specifically instructed him not to teach people about Jesus Christ. Instead, he believes that God wants him to teach about the angel. He talks about this angel, he has a name for this angel, interactions with this angel. Bentley related this fact at one of his meetings. He's kind of explaining his interaction he had with God. God, why do, I, why do I want to teach people about this angel, the angel? He questioned. Isn't it about getting people to believe in Jesus? Even Bentley seemed surprised by this unusual request from the Father. The response came back. Well, people already believe in Jesus, but the church doesn't believe in the supernatural. You will not see Bentley read from the scriptures. You may not even hear him talk much about God or Jesus Christ, despite all the miracles that seem to be taking place. But you will hear him talk about angels and the supernatural. And so it seems that the purpose of this revival was to get people focused on the supernatural. We need to watch out for things like that. When we see examples in the scripture, when they spoke in tongues, what did people hear? Things about the glory of God, the mighty things about God. When they were filled with the Spirit, what was always the result? Someone filled with the Spirit usually spoke to tell people about Jesus, proclaim Jesus boldly. We see that happen throughout the book of Acts. They were filled with the Spirit and they started preaching powerfully about Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah. We need to watch out when people start saying, Hey, I was told not to speak about Jesus. I was told to tell you about angels. We have to watch out for this doctrine. I want to help us to catch a few things here. If we have some practicals you could write down. I've got three practicals on this point. It's a... Obviously, it's a pretty involved point here, and we'll um, 
But I'd like to give you the series of action steps related to baptism of the Spirit uh, affirmed by speaking in tongues. The first one is this, is that we believe that God used the gift of tongues, the fine gift of tongues, to show the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost with the Jews, then with the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, and then Acts chapter 19. We believe that God used that then, and that was to show the beginning of the church, placing these two uh, diverse groups into one body. We do not believe that tongues is to accompany being baptized in the Spirit anymore. Scriptures would say, I write verse uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says that when you believe this message about Christ, you are included in Christ. There's a, having come to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are included in the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. That's what we understand. It does not attest to have to be baptized speaking in languages. That's what we believe. There's other churches out there, other people who I would say are dear Christians. We would disagree on this point. Again, Pentecostals would say you, you need to speak uh, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the way to really prove that is that you speak in tongues. Some would go farther again on the far extremes and say if you have not spoken in a tongue, we question if you're even saved. So there's this striving after speaking in tongues. Maybe it's falsely babbling just so you get someone's approval. But that's on one of the extremes of this, um, this understanding. And you know we love... We love Pentecostals. We love Charismatics. Some of you might know people in that world. Some of you might be people in that world. Uh, I am encouraged and reminded that so we don't believe you have to be, have the gift of tongues to be baptized in the Spirit. We believe that happens um, upon believing in Christ. But the other thing is we do believe we need to love people who have these other understandings. We need to love people in the Pentecostal world, in the Charismatic world. Um, how many of you know that? What's the love chapter? The greatest love chapter in, in the Bible, perhaps? 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. What is the context of 1 Corinthians 13? It talks about all the manifestations of the Spirit. It's that altogether worthless to perform His love. Okay. Um, the context that I, that I want to refer to here is that in Corinthians, Paul was addressing some things that were going wrong with the Corinthians. And he corrected them on a lot of things. Chapter 13 happens to be preceded by chapter 12, where he's talking about gifts of the Spirit and tongues, specifically. Chapter 14 is followed up by things they were doing wrong and things they should be right related to the Spirit and tongues. And in the middle of that is chapter 13. How does it start? Though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels that have not love, I'm but a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. He was saying, if you speak in tongues, if you think you're something because you've spoken in tongues and you're looking down on others and you're not loving, you're just a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. And the whole thing goes on to describe, here's how you love. And I think we need to be a church that though we would disagree with Pentecostal doctrine or charismatic doctrine, that they would know clearly that we have the love of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in our lives. They need to know that we love them even though we would differ in doctrine. The other thing I put down, so we, we need to love, we, we don't need to look for signs of languages, but we also need to beware of false doctrine and false teachings. Sometimes if, if someone were to say, you know, I'm just here to preach about angels, I'd say, I'd be extremely cautious about that doctrine. That's not what the Bible says, that's not the example that it gives. If someone brings up some other things, a lot of times the sensationalism can be anything I felt on my heart, I laugh hysterically because I think God wanted me to, well, we go back to the Scriptures and we see, you know, God said, uh, He prescribed to the Corinthians that there would be an order to their service. You're welcome to join us in service if you've got a Pentecostal background or charismatic, but we won't speak in tongues in our service. The Scriptures are clear that that is, that is uh, to be done. One, it says it should not be done at all unless there's an interpreter. And so if that's to be done, it should be done with an interpreter. But two, it talks about doing that in a, in a more private environment as compared to the public service. They were being corrected for how they were planted out in Corinthians. It was not going, hey, yeah, you guys are close, but here's some things. They were told to do it in another way, in a way that had interpreters, in a way that would bring glory to God and build up the body. We won't be practicing that here for the record. Um, to close here, I think we've got to wrap things up, and I'm still only on baptism of the Spirit. So we're just going to do a, we'll do a rapid finale here, the other two points, because I think this has the gist of what I want you to catch. This occurred at Pentecost with the Jews, with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles and Paul in chapter 19 there. And uh, 
We are placed in the Spirit upon believing in Christ. We understand from the Scriptures. Let's see here on... The other point you can write down here is just talked about the indwelling of the Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, the way God's Spirit related to men and women, it was temporary and it was external. God dwelt. His Spirit was among us. It was among the people of God. And we see how the Spirit would come and go. The Spirit would be anointed someone like Saul was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Um, but then, when he disobeyed God, the Spirit left him. And the Spirit would come and go. Samson's life. And he would leave. And the Spirit would come and go. And that's an Old Testament way of relating to God's Spirit. But the New Testament, we need to know it's a permanent deal. Upon believing, you're indwelled with the, the Spirit. Again, the same verse we have here. Ephesians uh, uh, 13 and 14 is a, a classic passage on it. There's another one here that talks about... Uh, first, Second Corinthians talks about the deposit that you receive from the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing your inheritance. John 14, 16 says, The Holy Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit coming to your life, you will have forever. Matthew 28, Jesus says, By His Spirit, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Hebrews 13.5 says, uh, again, of God's Spirit being with us, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We need to catch that when you receive the Spirit, when you come to believe in Christ, you're indwelled with the Spirit forever. You know, it would be a pretty silly deposit if you go, Hey, you've got a deposit to guaranteeing eternal life. Uh, and the deposit comes and goes into your life, that would be kind of... Or if you had a relationship, say like you're married, you're committed to one another for the rest of your life, but you're, you know, you're always wondering, is my spouse going to leave me today or not? Are they going to be with me? Maybe I'll screw things up today and they'll leave. Uh, or maybe I'll do things just right and they'll stay with me. Can you imagine the sort of relationship you'd have? It would be, it would be uh, weak. It would be not a strong foundation. It would be based on fear. With the Holy Spirit, He's come into your life. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Though He is the Holy Spirit, we might take Him into some unholy places. And it says the Spirit grieves there. But the Spirit never leaves. We need to catch that. That's a good thing. It's an exciting thing. That means you can dare to be courageous for God. You can do things that you might mess up. You might actually do something wrong. We look at Peter. And I think of Peter, he did things 100 miles an hour. Whether it was right or wrong, he did it with all his heart. And when he messed up by the grace of God, he got back up and, and tried to attempt great things for God again. So um, we can be confident, we can be bold in attempting great things for God because he will never, His Spirit will never leave us. The last thing we have here is just talked about the filling of the Spirit. Um, so there's the uh, baptism of the Spirit placed into the body of Christ through the Spirit. There's the indwelling of the Spirit. The Spirit comes to take up residence in you when you become a believer. The Spirit will never leave you. The last part is the filling of the Spirit, and that's something that's um, about being under the control of the Holy Spirit. This one we need to catch. In the Bible, we see that you're indwelt once. The Spirit never leaves you. You don't have to get it back. It's not a come-and-go situation. But when it comes to the filling of the Spirit, yielding control of the Spirit, it happens. we see it happening many times. Uh, in the, just in the book of Acts it happens a number of times to the apostles to all the believers we're even instructed in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 to be filled with the Spirit because sometimes that we are not we are not under the control of the Spirit it was often related to um, you know it's often compared to the drinking you know it says these guys are drunk with wine well, Ephesians says don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit it carries with it the idea of coming under the influence of the Holy Spirit. When you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you will... Um, let's see if I have that point up there. If you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you will boldly proclaim Jesus Christ with power. It says you'll receive power for witnessing. Um, if you're not under the influence of the Spirit, are you going to heaven? Sure. Does the Holy Spirit live within you? Sure. Are you living a life that God wants? No, I don't think so. I think it would be an anemic Christian life, a weak Christian life, maybe one that would start causing you to go, how do I get more excitement in my life? I look into the things of this world to get excitement, or I look into the deep end of uh, you know, doctrine, and I go, oh, it seems crazy to be roaring like a lion. Um, but you know, another option is to yield control of your life to the Holy Spirit. Um, start your day off yielding to the Spirit. We talked a, a teaching on this. You can look on the web, on our website, but we did a teaching uh, from Ephesians chapter 5 on being filled with the Spirit. You can go look it up. But the heart of it is yielding your life to God, asking Him to fill you, and then trusting that He will, that He will fill you, that He will control you, and that He will express Himself through you. And so um, I think the one last I'll just leave with an analogy and thinking on this, being filled with the Spirit. Sometimes I liken it to be... Uh, 
kind of like your life is a car. Say you've got a car, whatever your favorite car is, you're in the driver's seat. Uh, when you invite Christ in your life, it's like you invite Him into your car. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, doctrinally speaking, when you get to the gates of heaven, you pull up, and if the Spirit of Christ is there with you, He kind of says, this one's with me, let Him in. You drive in, and you know, you get on your way to heaven there. But, um, you know, because of inviting Christ into our life through faith, we have eternal life. But the life you live here is uh, entirely dependent on who's driving. It can be in your car, it can be in your passenger seat. Maybe you go, yeah, I invited Christ in my life, he's in the back seat, and I'm just driving life, crashing, doing my own thing. Or maybe we go places where God's Spirit's like crawled into the trunk because he doesn't want to be a part of what we're doing, but yet he cannot leave. And he's there being grieved. Um, but the full life, the life we see, and like Peter living, is the life where Jesus is at the steering wheel. And he's taken us places that we would not go on our own. Peter on his own was not bold and courageous for Christ. He denied Christ several times. He did not speak out about Christ. And uh, when the Spirit took control and he was filled with the Spirit, he lived a supernatural life that brought glory to Jesus Christ, that proclaimed him boldly. People got saved. And so I, I want to encourage us to make sure... The Holy Spirit is in the driver's seat in your life. Maybe you're a believer, you've received Christ, you've got His Spirit, but maybe you've been driving. And maybe it's time to give control over to God's Spirit to drive your life. Maybe it's time to turn over the keys. Are you headed to heaven? Sure. Are you living the supernatural life that God has for you? Maybe not. Maybe it's time to give control over to the Holy Spirit, just praying that He would fill you and take control and trusting that that he'll answer that prayer as the scripture says he will. So anyways, let's pray. We'll call it a morning. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you would help us to take these things in that, that you want us to catch, Lord God. There's a lot of things going real fast. Um, but Lord, I pray you'd help us to understand those things that you want us to related to tongues and baptism of the Spirit and um, God, related to being indwelt with your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you will never leave us. Lord God, that you will never forsake us even when we really mess things up. Thank you that we can attempt great things for you because you'll be there with us even if we fall on our face. Lord God, I pray that you would help us, everyone in this church, to yield control to you, come under the influence of your Holy Spirit, that you would do things that are holy, that you would do things that would bring glory to God and not to ourselves or not to angels, not to anything else. Lord, we ask that you would take control of each one of us. Teach us to, to let you have more and more influence in our lives, to drive our lives, um, that we would see the supernatural life you have for us. We ask for this together. We pray these things uh, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 All right. Well, thank you guys for bearing with me a few, maybe extra minutes or something. And next week we're going to finish chapter 2 and we're going to talk about the message that, that Peter delivered. While filled with the Spirit, the first time the Gospel was shared publicly, we have a record of it. I encourage you maybe to bring a friend or two with you who you think it would be good for them to hear the Gospel because we're going to look at that message from Peter and um, trust that it might help people understand it better. But anyways, join us next Sunday and hopefully we'll see you at Wednesday at the house churches. But thanks for, for coming this morning.